Let's take our Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 3. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles on the backs of the pews. And let me encourage you, if you would like to take one of the Bibles home with you, you are welcome to do so. That would be our gift to you. So please do that if you don't have a personal Bible at home. Well, as we come to Matthew chapter 3, we're continuing our series in the book of Matthew. And what we find as we're going through this book is Matthew making a clear statement about who Jesus is. Throughout the first two chapters, he has gone back into the Old Testament to remind us that God pointed us toward Jesus throughout the Old Testament. He reminded us that there were prophecies that clearly identify the Messiah and that Jesus Christ fulfills those prophecies by his ministry, by who he is, by where he was born. All of those things point to Christ. And that brings us to our message this morning. As we come to John chapter 3, once again, we see one who points people to the Lord. And as we go through this, I encourage you, don't only look at this passage of Scripture as a historical lesson in the life of John the Baptist, but look at the mission, the calling, the purpose of this great man, and understand that his purpose was to point people to Jesus, and I would submit to you that's our purpose as well. We as followers of Jesus Christ should make it our mission, our purpose, our life work to point people to Jesus. Now, as we come to the first verse of this third chapter, first of all, we see the mission of John the Baptist. And notice Matthew begins this passage by just saying in those days. He's talking about a period of time. Now, in order for us to put this into perspective, we left off in chapter 2 with Jesus being in Nazareth. This is probably some 27 to 30 years later that John the Baptist is on the scene. And what he's doing is ministering to people, sharing with people an important message about making themselves ready for the appearance of the Lord. So that was his mission. And look at what the first verse reveals to us. It says, in those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, John the Baptist came to herald. Actually, this word that is translated preaching in our English Bibles carries with it the idea of a herald. Now, what is a herald? In the first century, when a king would come into a town, often there would be a person who would precede the king's arrival. And that person was a herald. And that herald would cry out, the king is coming. He was preparing the people to receive the king, but he was also getting them to look with anticipation to the arrival of the king. The purpose of that herald was not to draw attention to himself. He wasn't there to have people look at him and think that he's a great person. What he was doing was saying, hey, be ready, the king is just about to arrive. And this is what John the Baptist was doing as he was preparing people for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was preaching that or heralding that in a particular region. 
Look at what the Scripture says in this first verse, that he was proclaiming this, heralding this, in the wilderness of Judea. Now, the wilderness of Judea, if you think about this, think of the Dead Sea in the Middle East, and the Jordan River empties into the Dead Sea, and just above the Dead Sea, there is a desert region. It's barren. Very little to look at or to find in the way of vegetation. It's a stark region. And when we look at it in the Scripture, the wilderness area that's being described in this passage of Scripture was an area where prophets would go. They would go there to deny themselves and to prepare themselves spiritually. They would pull themselves out from the normal circumstances, the home that they lived in, the places that they could go and be a part of in a community where it was plush and where everything that they needed was right at hand. And they were in an area where nothing was available. And they would do that to prepare themselves. I think it's significant that John the Baptist goes to this area because this was the area where prophets would come from. And many in the ancient Near East associated themselves with that idea. So here is John the Baptist, and he's identifying himself as a prophet by the region that he goes to, but there's something else at play. Who's he proclaiming this to if he's in the wilderness? He can't proclaim it to rocks or scrub brush. What we find in this text is, John the Baptist was there, and people were coming to the wilderness to hear his proclamation. They were going there on a spiritual journey as well. They wanted to hear the word of this man who is identifying himself as a prophet and hear what he has to say. And this was a growing movement that was taking place in preparation for the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So this is what John the Baptist was doing. He was pointing people to Jesus in this barren region to remind him that the king was coming. Now the message of John the Baptist was very simple. Repentance because the kingdom is at hand. Look at the second verse, and we find the message spelled out in a single sentence, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when John the Baptist shares this message, he's summarizing an important point that the people need to understood in preparation for the Messiah coming on the scene. And the first part of that message is repent. Now, what does it mean to repent. When we look in the original language in which the Scripture was written, repent carries with it very simply the idea of changing your mind. So what he's saying to these people is they needed to change their mind about something. And when we look at the context of this passage, what they needed to change their mind about was sin. They needed to stop holding on to their sin and turn from their sin to God. Now, that's an important message in any age, isn't it? Isn't it easy for us to lose sight of God, to forget about the importance of being obedient to what God has said is right and wrong, to sort of do our own thing? The Word of God 
is telling us in this passage of Scripture that this is the call that John the Baptist was giving to those who would come and listen, that they needed to prepare themselves spiritually to receive the ministry that was soon coming through the Messiah. So his message of repentance was important. But there was something else at play when he says repent. The repentance that John was calling them to also referred to a change of mind about a religion that they have held to. For many, their religion of Judaism had become very external. It was a religion that was characterized by following the rules, by jumping through the spiritual hoops that had been put in place by the spiritual leaders of the Jews. And what had happened was this. They had become very religious, but not very relational when it comes to God. They did everything that their religion prescribed for them to do, but there was no connection with God. It was a religion that was more about pleasing men than pleasing God. And so what John is calling them to do is to stop and think and to change their mind about how they viewed a relationship with God, not as a matter of religion, but as a matter of relationship. This would be a message that Jesus shares throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Now, his message that they needed to repent also is followed up by another important statement, and that is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what is John referring to when he talks about the kingdom of heaven? Bible teachers differ as to what the kingdom of heaven means, but this is what I draw from this passage of Scripture. John was speaking to people who were of the nation Israel. And when you go throughout the Old Testament, you find that there are promises to Israel about a kingdom. And those promises are centered around a king, the Messiah. Now, what John was telling the people of Israel is this, the Messiah is coming very soon. And if you receive him as Messiah, if you prepare yourself spiritually, the kingdom and all of those promises associated with the kingdom in the Old Testament can come to fulfillment. Now, that would have been a promise that the Jews would have taken hold of and said, wow, this is great. This is something I've heard about and waited for all of my life. If they were prepared spiritually to receive the Messiah. <clears throat> now, as we know, spoiler alert here, going on in Matthew, that's not the way they received him. The people of Israel, particularly the spiritual leaders, rejected the Messiah. But this was a promise that it's available, it's here. If you prepare yourself spiritually to receive what God has for you, the kingdom is at hand. John then quotes from an Old Testament passage of Scripture, excuse me, Matthew. Well, John's quoting him and Matthew's quoting John. So let's look at what he says. For this is he who the prophet of the, uh, Isaiah said the following, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, throughout our study 
so far in the book of Matthew. What have we seen? An Old Testament prophecy that he identifies as being fulfilled in Jesus or in something that is happening that points to Jesus. And certainly that's the case here. What Matthew is sharing with us is John was fulfilling the prophecy of one who would prepare the way for the Lord, and he fulfilled it as another way to point us to Jesus and to help us understand who he is. Something else about the mission of John the Baptist. His goal was to move people toward spiritual preparation for the Messiah. Look at verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Now, when we read this, we think, okay, he had a weird wardrobe and a really weird diet. What does that have to do with anything? Again, when we look in the Old Testament, we find that he is modeling his ministry in pointing people to God after an Old Testament prophet, Elijah. When you look in the Old Testament, you find the ministry of Elijah, and he had a similar wardrobe and a similar diet. And I believe that John was eating this way and dressing this way with purpose. When we look at Elijah's ministry in the Old Testament, Israel had turned their back on God. They had rushed headlong into sin. They had rejected the God of the Bible to go after their own pursuits. And Elijah came on to the scene to, to point them back to God, to tell them to stop pursuing that course that they were on. And I believe that John in this passage is adopting that similar approach. He wanted people to understand that now is the time to turn to the Lord. The prophet Elijah was one of the most respected prophets of the Old Testament by the people of John's day. So as John is emulating what he had done in his ministry, he is now pointing people to that important ministry that he's fulfilling. And then look at verse 5. In verse 5, there was a response. Then it says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So here's what's going on. John is beginning this ministry. He's pointing people to Jesus. Word spreads. And as other people hear about this ministry that is talking about the Messiah, the king who is coming to establish his kingdom, more and more people start to go out to hear John. And then they do something unique. In hearing his message, they not only walk away from it saying, wow, that was a really powerful message, they respond. Look at how they respond. First of all, they were baptized by him. Now, a little side note. A lot of times we think of baptism as only associated with the church. We think in terms of it being that way of expressing obedience and following what God has called us to do by an outward sign of an inward truth that has taken place in our hearts. And that's what baptism is for the church. It is an outward sign of an inward truth that I have committed my heart and my life to Christ. But 
before the church, baptism was also in play. You see, baptism was adopted by the church because everyone understood its significance. And what baptism meant was, I am uniting with a community. In John's day, the proselyte, that is, the person who wanted to become a Jew, joining into the Jewish community, would go through baptism as an entrance rite into becoming a Jew if they were a Gentile. That baptism was a way of demonstrating that I am now leaving my pagan religion and I am associating myself with Judaism and following God. But here's the interesting thing. With that baptism, it was a self-baptism. Archaeologists have found small tanks in some of the Jewish communities, and basically the person would go into the tank, and they would squat down in the tank and go under and come back up, saying, I am now identified as a part of the Jewish community. What's unique about John's baptism is he was baptizing them. Not them doing self-baptism to identify with the community, but this leader, John, taking them and baptizing them. And there's something very interesting about this. When we look at the fifth verse, it says, they were going with him, and look at this, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, a little side note, again, we believe in believer's baptism, that is, somebody who is able to make a conscious decision that I am following the Lord and being obedient to His command to be baptized. So I am submitting to a believer's baptism, but we also believe that the mode of baptism is immersion. As a matter of fact, we have a baptismal tank right up here that we use because we hold to immersion, that is, going under the water and coming back out. And what we find in this text I think is a clue that this was the method that John was using because it says they would go with him where? In the river. Now, if it were pouring or sprinkling or another mode of baptism, why would they have to go into the river? The implication of this passage is they were going into the river because John was dipping them. As a matter of fact, the word baptize means to dip. And so what's going on here? This group of people was coming, were, were, were coming and, and they were submitting to baptism saying, I want to identify with this movement. I want to be a part of this group of people waiting for the Messiah. But they did something else. They confessed their sins. Now, the word confess is from a word in the original language that means to confess out. It's the normal word that we think of with confession, but it has an X in front of it. So it's a, a, an intensified word. They, they were crying out, hey, I'm a sinner. And they were confessing their sins. And the idea is this. They were agreeing with God that what they were doing was sin. So there were these outward demonstrations of an inward faith And they were preparing themselves spiritually for the Lord. What a great preparation for the Messiah coming and preaching the truth of the gospel. But then we go on in the text and we come to verses 7 and 8. And we find the religionists of John's day coming. And what we find in verses 7 and 8 is 
something that is so typical <coughs> of the spiritual leaders of Israel. When we look at this, what we find is there were many mistakes that they were making. And the first mistake that they made, verses 7 and 8, they made only an outward response to a spiritual movement. What John was doing was drawing people and preparing them for the Lord, and they were to prepare themselves spiritually so that sin wouldn't interfere with their understanding of God and the truth of God. And so, here in the seventh verse, it says this, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Now, whoa, wait a minute, you know, John, you're being a little extreme here, aren't you? You know, here are the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to express a desire to know God, and you call them a brood of snakes? I mean, you're not going to build your church that way. You need to dial it back a little bit. What's going on? Here's what was going on. The Pharisees and Sadducees were the religious elites of John's day. They were the ones that had designed and were promoting an external religion. And as they came to John, I believe the Spirit of God was speaking to John that these people are here purely for the purpose of appearance. They saw a growing movement. They probably went out there initially just to check it out and say, hey, what's going on? We didn't sanction this. We didn't say this was okay. How dare he start a movement without including us or checking in with us? But I think there was even more going on. I think that they had come for the sake of appearance, like everything that they did. As a matter of fact, later in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, we find Matthew talk about these Pharisees and these leaders of Israel. And he describes them as this way, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. And then when you drop down to the 25th verse, it goes on to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. And then look at this, similar language. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Both John and Jesus dealt with these religious leaders in the same way. They were the religionists of John's day and of Jesus' day. They were the ones who promoted an external religion. And they wanted to come and join the party because that was the popular thing to do. But there was no desire in their heart to repent or to prepare for the kingdom of God that was at hand, the kingdom of heaven. 
It was all about appearances, and John calls them on it. Something else that we see in this text, he calls them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What John is calling them to do is to recognize that they needed to turn from their external approach to a relationship with God and come to a heart relationship with God, one that recognizes a personal relationship with Him, not a religious institution, not the observance of outward standards, not being a member of a sect or a group, not having that denominational name behind you, but looking and saying, I'm a sinner that needs to repent and turn to God and receive the mercy of God and listen to what the Messiah will have to say. Go through the book of Matthew, and that is the opposite response of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They bristled and pushed against everything that Jesus had to say. Now, when we come to the ninth verse, we find a thought process that was going on in them that I fear goes into the thought processes of many today. And that is they mistook their ethnic heritage for a spiritual connection. Look at the ninth verse. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, what's being said here? As we look at this text, there was a belief system that was going on in the first century with many of the spiritual leaders of Israel, and that belief system was this. Abraham was declared righteous. I am a descendant of Abraham, therefore I am righteous too. The idea was spirituality could be passed down from generation to generation to generation, and as long as you were related in some way to Abraham, then you were okay. You were right with God. What we need to understand is this. God has spiritual children, but not spiritual grandchildren. And what I mean by that is this. There are some believers that think, hey, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with very godly grandparents. I've heard some people who will say, hey, my, my grandpa or my uncle is a pastor, so therefore, I know all about God. <laughs> That's wrong. It doesn't matter what family you're from. It doesn't matter what church you're associated with. None of those external things make you right with God. There is a personal relationship that we have to have with God. And that personal relationship comes by faith, a faith that is yours, not inherited from somebody else, but one that you come to all by yourself. The Pharisees and Sadducees said, we're related to Abraham, we're covered. Of course, we're children of God. And then John says something rather unusual. In the ninth verse, his response to that thought process is, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, you can picture John saying this, can't you? He's in the Dead Sea region, desert, 
I would picture him being you know, near the Jordan River where there are stones of every shape and size all around him. And what he's saying to the leaders of Israel is this, God could even take one of these stones and turn them into a descendant of Abraham if he wanted to. He has that creative power, but also there's something at play here. <coughs> In Aramaic, which is probably what John was speaking to these people, a language uh, of the ancient Near East, the word stone and the word children are very similar. What he's saying here is God can make anyone his child. Many Bible teachers see this part of the passage of Scripture as a foreshadowing of the truth that God will call those outside Israel and He will make them children of Abraham because they will find faith through the Messiah and know God. When we come to the 10th verse, you think the brood of vipers was strong language. Look at verse 10. What he is warning these spiritual leaders about is this. They have miscalculated the cost of rejecting this message of repentance. Verse 10 says this, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Now, what does that mean? The axe is a sign of judgment. And what he is warning them about is this. This religious system and belief system that you have promoted and bought into is ready to be taken down. It's going to be upset. It's going to be overturned. And the process is already in play. When you look at it, <coughs> the Pharisees and Sadducees were basically worshiping a system that they had put into place, and not the one that the system was supposed to be looking to, God. And so what John is warning them about is this, look, that system cannot and will not last. It will fail. It will fall. And so when he's warning them of these things, he's trying to point them toward the Messiah. Stop holding on to this and turn to Messiah. Listen, there are things that we hold on to rather than Jesus, rather than the Messiah. They take our eyes off of Him. They misdirect us. We count on them instead of the one that we ought to count on. That's the warning of this passage of Scripture. Stop doing that. Stop holding on to these things. Look to the God of truth. And then he says this in the 10th verse, every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, this is a warning of judgment. These religious leaders were people who were destined for the judgment of God if they continued that course. Listen. There are a lot of people who find it offensive to talk about judgment, to talk about condemnation, to talk about hell. Jesus was not one of those. <laughs> and God's messenger here, John, is not one of those either. As John shared this, I don't think he was licking his chops saying, and I can't wait till you get there. I think what he was sharing with them was 
there are consequences to your rejection. And I'm giving you a true warning, one that calls you to move in a different direction. Last part of the passage. As we come to verses 11 and 12, we see John's message that the Messiah who is coming is greater than him. As John was doing his ministry, many people were coming to him. As a matter of fact, a little bit later, uh, the Gospels reveal that some of the disciples of John were becoming concerned because Jesus was gaining more prominence than John, and that was never a part of John's purpose or desire. But what we find is this, right out of the gate, John the Baptist is not pointing people to himself, but to Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Now, the first part of this passage gives us the right perspective. The ministry isn't about John the Baptist, the ministry is about Jesus. And what he says is crystal clear, he's going to do greater, far greater things than I do. He is mightier than I. That word mighty means strong. He has greater strength, spiritual strength, than I could ever have, and it's a recognition that Jesus is the focal point of John's ministry because he glorifies one greater than himself. Listen, we should never, ever, ever seek to elevate ourselves. Our faith is about Jesus. It's not about a pastor. It's not about a church. It's not about what version of the Bible you use. Our faith is about Jesus. And He is mightier than us. Yes, He's even mightier than that favorite radio preacher that you might listen to and think is wonderful. Jesus is the focal point of who we're to look to, who we're to worship. And the humility that John has is expressed by the last statement of that 11th verse because there he goes on to talk about the ministry and the baptism of Jesus is far greater than his. Notice he says this, <clears throat> whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Now, in the first century, the idea of loosening sandals, and by the way, that's another way that this passage is translated. I'm not worthy to loosen or untie his sandals. But listen, what it's saying is this, it, it, this is like the most humble statement that a person can make. In Jewish society, the Jewish slave would never untie the sandals of somebody else. It was too demeaning. And they would certainly never carry it. You see, in the Near East, your foot and pointing it to somebody is the supreme insult. It's like saying to them, you are lower than my feet. I don't know if you remember, but when Iraq fell and there was a statue of Saddam Hussein, what did the people do? They took off their sandals and they hit the statue with their sandals. Why? 
that was the supreme insult. I know a missionary that went to a meeting in the Middle East, and they crossed their legs, and their foot was pointing down an aisle. Nobody sat in the aisle. You know why? They didn't want to be insulted by the sole of his feet being pointed toward them. So here is John, and he's saying, I'm not worthy to do the most detestable thing. He is so much greater than I. And what is greater? Look carefully at the last part of this 11th verse. Verse 11 goes on to say, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what is he talking about when he mentions that Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Again, we go to the Old Testament. And we have these prophecies that talk about the change that is coming spiritually for Israel, and they're brought about by the Messiah. And it says this, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. This is what God is giving as a foreshadowing of this change that will take place due to the Messiah. Certainly we know that Jesus sent the Spirit of God after He was crucified and He was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God. The Spirit of God came. This was a part of Jesus' ministry, a far greater ministry than John's. But then he also makes the statement that there will be a purification that will take place. He will baptize with fire. Now, this is a statement that is made to the people of Israel. And there is a prophecy in the Old Testament that speaks of God refining Israel and taking the unbelieving Israel and winnowing it away until they are believers fully focused on Messiah. Malachi says this, For who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi, those would be the priests, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now, in both passages, it's talking about a spiritual change after the Messiah comes. And this is what John is preparing the people for as Jesus comes. He wanted them to understand the greatness of the Messiah. Last part of the passage, verse 12. John was sharing with them that God will move in judgment against the chaff and bless the wheat. This statement about baptizing them with fire, I think, is expanded in the 12th verse. And look at what the 12th verse says. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Now, what is a winnowing fork? On the threshing floor, they would take wheat, and they would have the shaft and the husks of the wheat there. And a winnowing fork was a fork that had these large, like a, like a giant wooden pitchfork almost, but fewer tines in it. And they would take it, and they would lift the wheat up. And as the wind blew, it blew away the shaft and it blew away the chaff and the hole or the nut that is within the wheat would fall. 
and they would discard the chaff, the hole that is around that wheat seed, and they would keep the wheat seed, and they would grind it and make bread. Now here, the Word of God is telling us that God is going to differentiate between the wheat and the chaff. What does He mean? The wheat are the believers, the followers of God, the ones who have embraced the Messiah. They are kept and gathered into the barn. Look at how He frames it. His winnowing fork is in hand, and He will clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn. So the good part of the wheat, that part that is the fruit of the wheat, that part that brings life and blessing and good, that's going to be gathered into the barn. That's going to be brought into the kingdom. But the chaff, look at what happens to that. But the chaff, He will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, this is a warning to the unbelievers. And it's a warning that says to them, rejecting Messiah, refusing to repent brings eternal consequences. And the eternal consequences are an eternity in hell, judged by God. John and Jesus do not mince words about hell, and neither should we. It is a doctrine that is clearly taught in the Scripture unapologetically, and it's a doctrine that warns people of the terrible consequences of sin. Later in Matthew, we find a similar statement about this separation of those who are followers of God and those who are not. The Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is sharing these truths, Jesus says this, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. This doctrine, this theme of separating believers from unbelievers, and then a consequence that comes to the unbelievers is taught in Scripture quite clearly. So what John the Baptist is doing is warning those who are rejecting Jesus of the consequences of that rejection. This morning we have seen the ministry of John the Baptist. We've seen that he had as his purpose to point people to Jesus Christ, to help them to understand who Jesus is, that he is coming to bring salvation, and there is a spiritual requirement in preparing for his coming, and that is to confess our sins to change our mind about our sins, and to be ready to receive what Jesus gives us in the way of truth. I think there are so many parallels between this text and the spiritual climate that we see in the world today. There is a world that gives little thought to Jesus, little thought to rebellious sin that rejects Jesus. We are called to turn from our sin to God. Do not allow a religious system to become our God, but to have a belief system in place that recognizes God for who He is and coming to terms with that belief in and of ourselves in our own heart, making 
that commitment to believe in the truth of God. So my encouragement to you this morning is this. Don't allow a religion to rob you of a relationship. Always look to God. That's what any good faith will do, point you to Him, not to anything else. Heavenly Father, thank You for this text. Thank You for the clarity with which it states the purpose of John the Baptist is to point people to Jesus, and Lord, that should be our purpose as well. May we be faithful in pointing people to Him. And God, my prayer this morning is if there is one here who has never come to the place to where they have personally placed their faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins, that they will place their faith in Him. Not in a connection with a family or a church, but in a response to the truth of your gospel that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. So I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.